Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com slash startup. Our guest today is Sasha Astafiva, who is a partner at Atomico. Atomico invests in Europe's most ambitious tech founders at Series A and beyond. Some of their investments include FarmDrop, Habito, and Tea Time Games. Previously, she was a principal at Felix Capital and VP of Finance and Business Intelligence at Viva Real. We talk about her time spent growing and scaling Viva Real in Brazil, the Series A consumer landscape in Europe, and how she thinks about growth in international markets. Without further ado, here's Sasha. Sasha, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Very good, Mike. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So Sasha, I know you worked on both sides of the spectrum in finance and also as an operator. Tell me a little bit about what initially attracted you to startups and venture capital. Uh, it's a great question. You know, I started my journey very traditionally, investment banking, and then I went to a private equity firm. And, you know, when I came to business school, I, I thought that this was the time to try something extremely different from what I'd done before. And startups were just very interesting to me because they were they provided exciting opportunities. They were fast paced, and I thought I could learn a lot. So I ended up actually um, going to join a startup in Sao Paulo in Brazil for the summer while I was in business school, and loved it so much that there was nothing else that I wanted to do after I graduated. So I, I ended up moving to Brazil and joining a startup for about three years. Um, uh, which was a super exciting journey. And I was a CFO of the business. It was a company called Vivarial, which is now the largest online real estate marketplace in Brazil. And then spent another about a year and a half at another startup in London before going back to investing and joining a venture capital firm. So, you know, to answer your question, I think the first one is that, you know, as an operator, I was always interested in value creation, which is actually quite similar to what investors think about as well. And I, I held very investor facing roles, uh, running finance, BI strategy and always thinking about, you know, how do we not run out of money? How do we multiply the money that we have? How do we make it last? And then I also, as an operator, I saw the positive impact that good investors could have on a startup journey. And I really wanted to replicate that. And, and finally, just, you know, many people say that, but I think it's really, it rang true for me is that investing and in venture is really about kind of investing into a world you want to see in the future backing these visionary founders and operators who have big dreams. Uh, and I found all of that extremely inspiring. So being an operator was an invaluable experience, but I felt that as a venture investor, I could have you know a lot more of these positive impacts on more businesses. And I thought that my operating experience was you know something that I would take away with me as a very, very valuable lesson. So that to be true. In terms of on the operator side, we've had operators that started in focus scaling American businesses that are based in the US. We'd love to just learn about what it's like to 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 grow and scale a business in Brazil. It's wild, wild west. <laughs> uh, first of all, no, honestly, and I, I, you know, I still think of that as sort of the highlight of kind of my my working experiences. So, you know, firstly, Brazil is a was and is a very interesting market. Uh, it's obviously, you know, a huge, huge market with a big number of people and many of 
of them, you know, are kind of coming out through up to the middle class. And that creates very interesting consumer trends. And, and real estate is an area which, you know, in markets like the US or Europe, you know, we've seen the journeys of, of these businesses and we sort of know what playbooks are. Uh, and Brazil was very early in that, in that journey. So when I joined the business, I also, again, got extremely lucky, and, and we can talk about that story because I think it's a really interesting story of entrepreneurship as well, looking at the founders who started that company and how they went about it. But it was about 50 people, which wasn't a lot for that type of business because it was very sales-driven. So, you know, you had sales offices around the country, and each one of them had salespeople. So if you thought about it, it wasn't like a huge number of people. I was there for three years, and when I left, it was 500 people. And I can tell you that you know, being on that sort of 10x in terms of employees journey, where we did also three rounds of funding during that time, raising both from local investors, but also from the US investors, and and changing playbooks and changing our strategy and, and hiring people and trying to maintain our culture and growing very quickly. All of those things were just amazing lessons, but they were harder to do as well because they were in a more nascent market. And so you learn a lot more. You also learn to be much more flexible, I think. And, and, and the other thing is, which I think is also interesting is that because you're operating in a different culture, and I think that's sort of what you were also referring to, you have to be mindful of that culture, not only in terms of the product that you're building, but also in terms of the, the team that you're building and the, what drives different people to come to work. So just as a very small example, you know, I found that Brazilians, for example, felt more strongly about work environments. They became very close friends. You know, everyone that I worked with added me as a friend on Facebook. You know, I think that you typically don't add your boss on Facebook, maybe in a, you know, if you work in, in, in definitely not if you work in London, <laughs> not anymore. But for them, it was a very personal experience. And that's something that I had to learn. It wasn't just about, you know, how do you, um, what kind of business do you build? What kind of product do you build? But also how do you treat your coworkers? How do they see you and how do you uh, construct your team culture that all of that was i think colored by by me being in a different culture in a different geography that's awesome it reminds me a little bit of like this podcast episode that i heard graylock's podcast i remember reed hoffman talking to a, a founder that was based in chile and he was saying how i forget the founder's name or the company but he was saying how founders internationally his one piece of advice was to when they're looking for fundraising seek actually fundraising locally not just you know, the Silicon Valleys of the world because of the, there's, there's, yes, there's a lot more money in Silicon Valley, but there's also a heck of a lot more competition because everybody's coming to Silicon Valley and the New Yorks and the Londons. So that's interesting what, what you said about how you raise and you focus on your fundraising part in Brazil, but you also looked international as well. And I think also part of it is that, you know, and this is something that we're also seeing in Europe now, but at that point in time, you know, I was in Brazil from between 2012 and 2015. And there was a lot of uh, strong interest in the Brazilian market, which still is there from U.S. funds and more U.S. funds than European funds, but definitely, you know, U.S. funds. And so if, especially if you were building, you know, a business that were based on playbooks that have already worked in, uh, in for example, U.S. markets, it was a lot easier to understand for U.S. investors as well because it looked like it was much more execution play. And I think also uh, Brazil just presented a really exciting growth case uh, and an opportunity to build very big businesses. So we definitely looked outside um, outside of Brazil for later rounds. A Series A was led from lo by local investors. Um, and because we found that we could also get a lot of value from investors that have seen, you know, these business models work in, in their local markets. And so, you know, that was part of the reason of why we sort of didn't just look at local investors, but also looked at outside and into the U.S. market in particular. 
Totally. Talk a little bit about your, about your transition. I know you came into venture capital and you moved to London and you started working at Felix and now you work at Atomico. Talk to me a little bit about how you're thinking about the European landscape when it comes to like startup ecosystems and what makes you really excited about it. it it's interesting. I think Europe, you know, is uh, historically was thought potentially less exciting as a startup landscape than, than the US, but I think that's really changing. And, and we see that both in terms of, you know, the kind of the record levels of funding that we've seen into startups in Europe, but also that the fact that, you know, 20 European countries have produced at least one unicorn, which is, which to me is like a sign that the, there are environments that are being created in Europe, Europe now for creating really exciting big companies, which is basically providing capital, access to talent. And, and just general sort of belief in the ability of people to build big companies and desire to fund them. You know, you have more developers in Europe than in the U.S., which is a, which is a, you know, a great start. And I think we're also seeing that there is more and more excitement about European tech ecosystem from venture funds outside of Europe as well, which again is, I think, a sign of the maturing ecosystem. Um, we see many rounds where both U.S. investors but also Asian investors are participating as well. And and, and I'm personally very excited about the opportunities to build very, very big companies that will come out of Europe. I think we're more and more living in a world which, you know, has, especially with the current effects that we're seeing from COVID, of, you know, people also building companies remotely and, and just maybe borders somewhat disappearing when we think about where ideas can come from. But I think that also means that the European tech ecosystem will, will become even more interesting because there are definitely, there's definitely great talent that can build companies here. And now that there's also more capital, I think that combined just leads to more opportunity in Europe. I'd actually love to dive in as well about talent. I had on um, Charles Hudson, who's an American investor uh, based in Silicon Valley. And we started talking a little bit about like secondary and tertiary markets. Now he thinks about investing in secondary and tertiary markets. Um, this is, of course, in the U.S. But I'd love to. I love the the European take, if that's all right on this on, on, on this question. He how he thinks about it is, and, and these are of course referring to venture backable businesses. It's okay to start out in a secondary market, looking at the U.S. landscape. However, there has to be a plan of action for him. Uh, to become interested or intrigued, um, to move or at least have a have a location in the Bay Area or on the coasts or or in a major city that uh, because uh, due to talent and as you scale, you're going to be a want to be around like for example like the best software engineers and in terms of hiring. How do you think when you think about Europe and of course Europe is very very different to America. It's 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 it, it, it's a lot of different countries. But how do you think about investing in secondary in companies that are located in, in, uh, in secondary and tertiary markets? You know, this is quite interesting because I think actually there is probably an answer to this question that would have definitely been right, you know, a year ago. And then there is an answer that is probably right now. And then we don't know what the right answer will be, you know, a year from now. And I think, you know, the fact that all of us are now sort of sitting in our living rooms or bedrooms and working and working as effectively as we used to work when being in an office, I think has, you know, made us wake up to the fact that, you know, we can, the ta talent can be located anywhere. And so from the point of view, where does the idea, where does the business originate? One of the things that, are, you know, about sort of tertiary uh, or secondary markets, I suppose, is that because of a kind of 
uh, sometimes I would, I, would, I would also guess, you know, the ecosystem maybe being a little bit more overlooked, the founders have had to sort of build up their businesses without capital to, for a while. And that makes them more resilient. So actually, there are, you know, many, I think, of the European companies that have come, that have come out in, in the last sort of few years, they have originated in some of these potentially overlooked geographies. But in terms of talent, um, I think with what we're seeing now, having a location in one of the big cities will probably become less relevant. It already was happening before, you know, a good example of that. Many of the companies, for example, would set up offices in Spain, right? Particularly where a lot of the development talent would be located for a variety of reasons. You know, the cost of living is more affordable, the weather is better, um, and, uh, and their immigration uh, requirements were less sort of stringent than in some of the other markets. So was Spain sort of a hotbed for entrepreneurship? You know, not necessarily at the beginning, but it became, uh, you know, a bigger hub for where people chose to locate their development teams, for example. And I think that's also, uh, it's, it's, again, it was, it's a sign of the times of that time, what the world looks like now when all of us are working in different locations and what that would mean going forward is a big question mark for me. I think one thing about Europe in particular is that I think the the diversity that we have in Europe by nature of just all of the different countries sort of located here, different languages being spoken is, is something that is a true asset to this part of the world. Because no matter where you start your business as a European company, you're always thinking international because you're always thinking about that next European market you're going into. And I think that's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing asset to have for any business, regardless of whether it starts, you know, in London or if it starts in Tallinn. How do you think about international expansion in Europe? Because you, you, it seems like in terms of consumer behavior, it can actually vary quite a bit between countries. No, that's a great question. And I think actually, you know, a lot of the businesses that we see today, especially consumer facing ones, you know, they, they're acute aware of that because it's less about you know if you're a b2b business expanding internationally can always just mean you know establishing a sales team and establishing relationships it doesn't always mean you know changing your product for example or changing your marketing message but for consumer facing startups i think it often does you do have to ask yourself a question about the customer that you're going after and if that customer is different culturally different it does sometimes mean that you'll have to adapt a lot more um, and but the one thing about Europe I think is because because of that most of the entrepreneurs that start businesses in Europe they think about those challenges and of international expansions from day one so it's kind of hardwired into their behavior into their brain and the same goes for kind of diversity because they're already thinking about their different customers from day one as well. And, and I think that, you know, again, there can be challenges with that because it's not easy. But if you're able to overcome those challenges, that's potentially, you know, another barrier to entry, which allows you to build something defensible against your competitors. You know, when something is hard and you're able to tackle that that's an advantage that you're creating for yourself. We see this a lot as well with some of the businesses, the way that they do branding as well. You know, they have to think about kind of how, whether they're appealing only to their local user base or if they're appealing to user base across different geographies. You know, again, this question 
it doesn't come up as a secondary question for European founders. That's the first question that should be coming up in their head. And because they know that from day one, they need to think about international expansion just because of the size of the markets, individual markets that they're going after. So I know that Atomico, you invest at the Series A. I would love to like just hear your thoughts about the stage and how you think about like the European landscape when it comes to early stage uh, VC, since you're one of the first um, European investors that we've had on the show. That's a, such an interesting question. I think a lot of people ask this as well, because the answer is actually actually quite tricky. The Series A is probably the trickiest stage to define properly. You know, if someone asks me, like, what's a seed stage? What's a Series B stage? I think the answer there is a lot more obvious. But see, but Series A is this, like, market territory. And and to be honest, you know, many people complain, and rightfully so, you know, they say that today's many of the Series A rounds, they look like very big seed rounds. Especially, I think that's true if the quality of the founders and the idea uh, they're going after is very compelling. And there's also fit between how early a fund is willing to go and, you know, how much risk they're willing to take and the stage of that startup. So then, you know, you, it is true that at this stage, you can sort of start looking things, you can start looking a little bit, calling it series A, but actually uh, still displaying many of the characteristics of a seed business. I think the longer people wait between seed and A, the more metrics become important. So again, you know, I think the, the early kind of series A's that, uh, that have been coming up more and more in the recent past are a reflection of, you know, amazing founders with amazing ideas going after big markets and kind of offering that uh, as a package, but also that being, you know, something that funds, again, given their risk appetite, which potentially can be higher for funds with more capital to deploy, are willing to take. So that already, you know, that's a recipe for your Series A. Now, in a traditional sense, typically, where you do sort of wait a certain period of time between seed and series A, the metrics become quite important. And, and of course, you know, I'm grossly sort of generalizing here, but I think when it comes to consumer facing companies in particular, I think key is to get at least early product market fit and be able to show promising early unit economics. And what I mean by that is that, you know, you can show that you've tested sort of different ways of acquiring customers and got to what you believe is a reasonable customer acquisition cost. And then you've proven that you're able to kind of pay back that CAC and have some path to positive unit economics going forward. It doesn't mean that you have figured everything out. They have all the answers figured out. Your team is hired, you know, you're just executing. No, but you have, you have early signs of that, of that unit economics traction, because I think that sort of gives investors some comfort that you've used the seed money wisely where you've tested different sort of go-to-market strategies and you've come up with an idea of what that, you know, what you've learned and what the different strategies might look like and that you're actually able to, you know, make the unit economics work, which is important, I think, for consumer-facing business. So that's where we say, you know, you're ready for the Series A in a traditional sense. But as I said, I think in today's market, there are some exceptions to the rule. And typically, again, generalizing, it's funds that are willing to take more risk in founders that are, you know, exceptional entrepreneurs with ideas that are going after a very, very big market. That makes sense. So what are some like consumer trends or, or, or consumer behavior that you're right now very focused on in the European market? Yeah, it's quite interesting because also I think, the, you know, COVID has changed everything, but something that a trend that started at some point, but it has accelerated tremendously is just everything moving digital. Um, and people must have talked about it as well. So I will not be, you know, someone that says sort of anything new here, but I think that one of the cool things that we're seeing is, um, you know, if historically, uh, you know, my mother didn't know how to use a phone, now she does. And that's, that's amazing. And she's not going back. I mean, 
um, maybe not my mother, maybe someone else's mother, because my mother lives in Ukraine, but you, you get the gist. They, you know, the way we're getting food, the way we're communicating, the way we're working, just the way that even we do employee activism. I mean, there are startups that are emerging for basically any single part of our lives today that have a digital component to them. And I think that's, that's the trend that is not going away. Um, the other one is, which we looked at and before, but I think it's becoming even more interesting, is digital health in general, but also mental health and femtech. I'm particularly excited about femtech, pretty nascent area, but again, seeing how uh, healthcare in general today is overwhelmed with other concerns, uh, we're seeing more and more people taking their own healthcare into their own hands, both from the preventative side, but also thinking about kind of just any aspect of health um, and just saying, you know, how do I basically take care of my own wellness? Femtech is interesting because it's so nascent and there is so little information and women are, you know, are hungry to learn more. They're also responsible for majority of decision-making at home, which has to do with health, health, with healthcare. They are responsible for majority of consumer spending decisions anyway. And they're basically hungry to have products and services that are addressed to, to them, to their sort of uh, health needs. So Femtech is super, super interesting. Again, early days, but we're you know meeting and talking to a lot of companies in the space. Something we've looked at before and something that I think is still also quite interesting to see that market being resilient is personal care and beauty. I think it's just you know the traditional kind of lipstick effect, which is you know in times of tough. Again, this is maybe a very female thing to say, but you buy lipstick and you feel better. But also in general, again, this idea of just taking care of yourself and uh, and you know feeling better because of both personal care and beauty and then finally the other thing which is I'm we're starting to look at again and this is one of the markets that has been hit by by COVID for sure but I, I'm quite interested in markets that have consumer journeys being broken and subpar and that's prop tech uh, part of it is, of course, you know, my previous experience as an operator and being in the uh, in the real estate space, but also, you know, having been in the sort of uh, a, a participant in the prop tech market uh, as a consumer in, uh, you know, in the UK, I can say that with confidence that it's one of the worst consumer experiences and 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 it's fascinating given it's one of the biggest consumer spending categories that the user journey is still so uh, so broken so i'm you know i'm interested in different startups that are trying to attack those challenges in the prop tech market again keep it in mind that of course it's not one of the sectors that has been benefiting from covid but it's definitely one of the sectors that i'm quite interested in on the femtech side yeah i mean it's i think it's also really really interesting i mean we ha i had on a Soraya Darabi, and it's also interesting what she said about it too, because that's also one of her focuses in, or or, or something that that that, she, that she's interested in. And she was saying how you know if you look at like for example like Roe or, or Roman getting funded on the on the men's health side, but it's interesting because there really hasn't been a lot of those types of companies on the female side. In some ways, it could be a reflection of of VC about how VC is mostly male oriented. Has COVID changed any of your theses thus far? I know that you said that you're still pretty bullish on prop tech. Has there been like any other changes around COVID? You know, I think it's just uh, COVID has created a lot of uncertainty. So, you know, in, in terms of, I think the one is, uh, I mentioned the digital shift. Uh, I think it accelerated that thesis that we had around digital shift. So um, that's definitely a big change uh, because I think, you know, the adoption that we've seen is something that's, that we've, we've been excited about. And that's definitely the impact of COVID. Um, 
you know, we did talk about PropTech and how we're still excited about it. Although if you look at the data, you know, people are still a bit cautious and we still need to see the after effects of COVID in terms of just what, what kind of impact it will have on the actual transaction volumes in, in the space going forward, both from just people's, you know, I'm sitting at home and I'm not going to go try to buy a new place, but to like how much income do people actually have for making such big sort of uh, purchases and decisions. So that's something to be seen. I think there are some also sectors that have been put a bit on hold, I would say, you know, travel and mobility. I think mobility is rebounding more now because we're starting to think about as countries are opening up a little bit. And obviously that has that is going to have an impact on the space. Travel also, interestingly, of course, has been hugely impacted by COVID. But people are starting to also pivot a little bit more in, in the travel space and think about creative ways of still offering kind of travel services that don't have to do with, you know, exotic destinations and traveling very far. So a lot of this sort of staycation type of value propositions. If people had a thesis about those sectors, that's definitely changed, I think, in the recent in the recent past. But I think the biggest shift is just the increase in uncertainty. And I know that some of the people you've spoken with on this podcast about, about this as well, you know, their opinions have also changed. And I would say that I'm in the same camp you know if you asked me a few months ago i would say are these behaviors here to stay well at some point i would have said yes probably but then as soon as the economy kind of opened up you know everyone ran to the restaurant and and decided to go out and see people so clearly there's a lot of pent-up demand so (laughs) what does that world sort of look like going forward which behaviors are going to change and which ones are going to go is i think still still a question mark uh for a lot of people and you know most people don't don't have a crystal ball so we need to see how First of all, how long things last and, and, and what the kind of consumer response is going forward. There's a lot of talk, a lot of chatter amongst founders in, in, in the classic phase, uh, culture trumps strategy. You know, it's, it's hard to build culture remotely. And so that's something that, that, that I've been thinking about as well. Yes. No, it is really tough. And, and, you know, and I think also it's, it's, we have to adapt to this new reality. You know, for me, just personally, you know, I started Atomico during lockdown and I had a team member who started on my team also during lockdown. We hadn't met before and with, you know, with Matt for the first time walking in the park, socially distanced. We have some people who are working from different locations for a certain period of time. And one of the things is it, you have to work harder at it for sure. It is possible though. And one of the beautiful things as well is that you you're inviting people into your home, you know, for better or worse. <laughs> but but it is very fun. And it's fun. And, and it, it makes us more human. I think that this working from home also has had the benefit of us as as as, as human beings more sort of approachable and uh, to others that we work with, because we're now instead of just walking, you know, making small talk, we're also sharing some, you know, deeper concerns and deeper things um, about our personal lives because we are in each other's personal lives and work lives at the same time. And, um, and I think that's something that is, I find personally very valuable given how much time I spent working to getting to know people uh, on this kind of uh, more personal level for sure, but it is an adjustment, hundred percent. Absolutely no, and and I, and I really appreciate that example since you know you're you've you've gone through it and you're still going through it, right? With 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 me on your team, how talk to me a little bit about about meeting founders. How has since you've had to um, meet with them uh, remotely when you're looking at new opportunities to invest in, has it been difficult establishing conviction? Uh, not really. I think we're also adjusting to that. We've actually done a few deals now completely virtually. Um, you know, and of course, it, it would be better to go and meet founders, you know, but we have definitely been able to establish conviction during this time. Um, I do think, though, that one thing to mention, which is, uh, 
you know, investing is a two-way street and relationship building is a two-way street. So one, of course, is a good question for us, you know, can we build conviction around the founders? But I think it's also, it becomes even more important because the founders are choosing us as well. And we shouldn't forget about that. And so they have to also build conviction about the VCs that they, you know, kind of decide to work with. Um, and I think that's why it's become even more important to invest in those relationship um, building activities early on. And uh, because now, you know, it's harder to pop by each other's offices. So you do need to spend more time Zooming together uh, or Google meeting or whatever your, uh, your uh, platform of choice is. But I think um, that's something that we're trying to do more and more of, which is spend more time with founders virtually to compensate for the fact that we're not able to see them. But it hasn't stopped us, as I said, from building conviction. Um, I think we're recognizing that given uncertainty uh, in the market, it's no longer just a case of, well, this will last for only you know a couple of weeks and then we will go back to normal. I think we are um, learning as everyone else of what the new normal looks like. And, and that does um, does mean changing uh, changing the way that we have historically operated. And we try to be nimble, which is, you know, um, the same advice that we would give to any of the founders as well, being nimble in this time. Absolutely, I think that's great that you've uh, that, that, that you made a few deals in uh, during COVID. Well done. That's 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 awesome. What's your most recent investment, and, and what makes you excited about it? So that's quite interesting. You know, I joined Atomic only three months ago, so it's it's early days. I I haven't personally made an investment. Um, I can talk about an investment that I'm excited about that we did as a, a consumer investment that we did recently as a firm. It and and I think that's also reflective of. Of, of kind of the deals that we're excited about at Atomico. It's a company called Coral Kids, which is in the childcare space and helps basically families find childcare alternatives. You know, it's it's an interesting space because one, it's it's extremely broken. It's a horrible consumer experience. It's a huge expense as well. It's one of the many reasons that women don't go back to work after having children because it is so expensive to provide childcare. It's very difficult to find childcare. It's also because it's such an important part of the child's development process of um, you know who they spend time with early on uh, in their in their life. That trust is extremely important, um, and the market is super difficult to navigate. Um, so it's a huge problem that needs solving, um, and it's a huge challenge for for women in particular who often. Um, you know, suffer because of the lack of childcare options as well. Um, so Rachel, who's the founder of Core Kids, is extremely passionate about the topic. Um, she's, she's assembled a great team around her, and they're truly on a mission to change how we do childcare. And for me, you know, I find it so inspiring to watch, but I'm also inspired by the fact that these are the types of companies that we want to back at Atomical because in addition to just thinking about you know, market size and the quality of the founders and go-to-market strategy and various other things that other investors, I think, think about, uh, one of the very important things that we think about is investing in purpose-driven companies that really have a positive societal impact as well. And Coral Kids is a perfect example of that. I love it. It sounds really, really, really cool. So what's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in didn't, and in retrospect, wish you did? That's also a great question. Like you're just <laughs> coming up with great questions all around. Um, I'll bring one from my previous life, my previous job. Um, there's a company that I got to know during during that time. It, it's a company called Huel, uh, which I'm not sure if, you, if you're familiar with, but it's a it's basically a nutritionally complete food product. So it comes in powder form or in bars. But you know, if you're on the go and you're trying to sort of get all the nutrients that you need that you would typically get from sort of a cooked meal, you just either drink or eat fuel product and you get all of those nutrients. I remember when I met that business, um, I, um, 
I was worried about a lot of things. It was very early, early traction. They were not located in London. They were located outside of London. I remember taking a train and sort of, you know, getting off the train in sort of what looked like, uh, you know, a very small town. And the taxi cost like a fraction of what it would cost in London. And I thought, oh, this is really far. You know, it must be so difficult to recruit and, and various other things. And then, you know, I met an extremely passionate founder, um, but I was still on the fence because of one, you know, location. But also, honestly, to be honest with you, I wasn't the customer to product. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I, found it, I found it hard to imagine, uh, you know, being the customer. And this is the mistake, I think, uh, that a lot of venture investors make, which is why I can, you know, talk about it now and say I wish that I had looked at things differently. One is, you know, I, we have to remember that we're not a customer of every product that we're going to invest in. Sometimes we're going to basically wake up and say, you know, actually, I, you know, I was wrong about this. And there are a lot of people who are super passionate and love it. And it's just not me, but it doesn't mean that there's no market for it. So this was, you know, the first, I think, mistake. Um, the other one is just, uh, um, you know, I was put off by, by the fact that they were located quite far away. And I thought that makes it harder to, to recruit talent. And I was frankly, actually wrong about that too. <laughs> it's, it turns out that if you build a great culture, uh, you are able to recruit talent in different exotic and interesting locations and, and that not everything is permanent. You know, so many companies, they change locations over time. So that should never drop, that should never stop, stop you. Uh, and finally, another thing, which is um, something that, um, I think they've done well, and it's something that great founders do well, um, is, um, you know, when you have a passionate founder, you are sometimes afraid about them being so passionate that they can't let go. Um, and you start worrying about their, you know, management capabilities, maybe because they're so, you know, uh, razor focused on, on their mission. And, but one of the things that I think that company did well is they've assembled a great team around them and they hired people that brought different skills to the table. So again, you know, you live, you learn. In hindsight, a lot of things make sense. I mean, I bring up that as an example because I, I think that's the one that um, uh, where uh, a lot of great lessons were learned by, by me. And, uh, and I will always remember that experience and, and the thought process I went through. But I'm also really happy that they, they proved me wrong. You know, it seems like there was, there's a couple lessons learned uh, from that experience. We've also had previous investors on the show that uh, Hayden Williams was saying how he actually thought he was the target consumer for, uh, for the product, but he didn't think that he would actually buy the product. So he passed. I think, I think the company was Daily Harvest that he passed on. What's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? So the first one a lot of people talk about it. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time about on it. Um, diversity is definitely something that is a huge problem in VC. Still, you sort of mentioned it as well about femtech, you know, that uh, so many of the investors are, can't relate to the product because they're not the target customer. I think, you know, we've talked about, people have talked about it quite a bit and we know what the benefits of diversity are. Um, and I'm a strong believer that it's not just about gender diversity, it's about diversity across the spectrum, both ethnic diversity, um, but also diversity of backgrounds, opinions, you know, just in general, we need to think about, are we fully representing the world that we're investing in? Um, but then another thing, which may be a bit, you know, controversial, and I think people talk about it a lot privately, so I'm going to take a risk of talking about it a bit more publicly, is... Um, uh, how much of the decision-making in venture has been uh, driven a little bit by what other people are doing and what other people are thinking. Um, I think, you know, it can be a good sort of short-term value creator for sure, this sort of fear of missing out and, and, uh, um, and 
various other ways that people have coined this behavior. Uh, but I think it is important to step back and think about the long-term value creation of businesses and be able to come up with a thesis and would do the work that we need to do to come to the conviction um, about long-term possibilities for each business without following the herd, which I think is, can be quite hard to do uh, in the current very competitive market, but it's definitely something that I think is really important. So what's really important is actually being thesis-driven? Yes, I think thesis-driven and driven by you know fundamental work around each opportunity rather than necessarily sort of um, you know, rumors or thinking about uh, what other what your competitors are doing. That's really interesting because I've had on folks that are very proud generalist investors that, that are not thesis driven. Um, some of them are very very anti thesis driven, um, and the reason why that they are uh, not thesis driven is because they think that there's there's only so many outcomes that can that are venture scalable and that that could be unicorns in specific categories so they of course there's not one way to skin a cat no for sure and there are different ways of doing it but i think the one thing that is again is important is I think as investors we have to think about also long-term value creation all of the businesses a majority of the businesses that we back you know, it's long-term journeys. Um, and so when you're thinking about those outcomes and you're thinking about what kind of business this can become, your sort of feeling about it and your point of view needs to be based, I think, on the work that you do as a fund or the work that you do as an investor rather than necessarily on, you know, what you think other people are doing um, and whether or not something is an extremely hot deal now because those things again can change over time you know sometimes i feel like fomo definitely um, occurs in venture capital and making sure that you're in the right deal where you're basing your conviction off other people rather than yourself 100 what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally so i probably shouldn't admit this uh but i will and i'm probably there will be some people that will be super alienated by this but i'll say it anyway i i'm not a huge fan of nonfiction, especially business nonfiction. I love a good memoir and, and I, I do, I love fiction in general. Um, you know, I love a good story, beautiful writing. And, and I actually think that reading fiction helps human beings become more empathetic. You're just learning so much and you're literally traveling into the stories of others. So um, keeping all of that in mind, you know, there are a couple of books that I've read, reread recently, most of them memoirs that I've absolutely loved and that have inspired me actually both personally and professionally, you know, just to sort of name a few um, uh, Deborah Levy's book called Cost of Living, I think is amazing. Jeanette Winterspoon's memoir called uh, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, which is, I think, is like the coolest name for the book ever. Um, or <laughs> all of, just thinking about it, you know, uh, gives me goosebumps. It's, a, it's such a great name. Um, all of Maya Angelou's books, which are incredible and all about her journey to who she became. You know, I'm, I just think in general, I'm really inspired by stories of people who have had to overcome challenges and who came out stronger because of that. And they, they could come from entirely different walks of life. You know, I can relate to that in my own story coming from sort of small town in the middle of nowhere in the southeast of Ukraine and, and being somewhat different very often and having to fit in and find a place in the world that wasn't always welcoming. And I think that's just the beauty of literature um, to transport you and help you learn uh, life lessons, which can be both applied personally, but also I think professionally. So again, those are um, those are some some of my favorite sort of books about real people. But um 
as I said, I think it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful way to, to learn lessons that you can apply anywhere in life. I love that. I know we spoke earlier of your journey, your, your incredible journey uh, from UK, Ukraine to the US and then, um, and then gone on to have a, just a, such an amazing career. Um, you are not the first person, by the way, that, that, that said that about you don't like, um, like business books per se. I had on uh, Kate McAndrew, who's an investor at Bolt, and she said that she loves reading poetry. So my final question that I've asked folks is what's one piece of advice that you have for B2C founders? First is, you know, you can't be everything for all people. Um, you have to find your customer and you have to make her super happy. Um, I think you need to obsess about your brand, uh, especially in B2C. Brand can be your biggest barrier to entry uh, because that's building trust and that's building customer love. And, and finally, you know, obsess about your unit economics. Um, it's, and when I say that, you know, I mean, it's so easy to burn money on marketing. Just don't be that person. Um, you know, it doesn't, just don't. <laughs> so that's, that's why, you know, a lot of people talk about it, but I think the dirty truth is that uh, so much of growth has been led by, you know, burning money on on marketing without thinking about unit economics. Um, it's okay to experiment, but do think about how you build sustainability into your business, especially in the current environment. I think it's really, really important. For sure. I love that piece of advice. And there's, there's always a balance, a, a delicate balance versus you know growth and profitability. Um, that's kind of like a bit of a tightrope. Well, Sasha, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. This was a blast. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Sasha, and I really hope you enjoyed it. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.